The Spirit of God is moving upon His people and He is raising up a generation that is prepared for power that will touch this world. You are now listening to the last day's return of the historic faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Bart Ehrman is very good at telling people what they want to hear. Muslims love him. So according to Bart Ehrman... Bart Ehrman! I ask everyone to pray for the guidance of Bart Ehrman. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may, him, may he guide Bart Ehrman, inshaAllah ta'ala, because the, the evidence that he has done against the Bible is... is man, it, he lays it on so thick. I, I mean, he lays it on thick as it can get, man. Atheists also love him. Here are some clues which I learned from the biblical historian Bart Ehrman. Most atheists know your work, um, and they love the story about how you went to uh, Wheaton Bible College and, and were going to be a preacher, and then you went to Princeton Theological and found out how the sausages are made. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, I, I, I've often said this, I don't know how anybody could take one of your teaching company courses or read one of your books and, and still be a believer afterwards. People who are looking to dismiss the biblical Jesus love Barter, because he is supposed to represent what happens to Christians when they dare to face the facts. Well, unlike a lot of people I knew at the time who were committed Christians, my view was that I wanted to go wherever I thought the evidence was leading me. The reality is that Ehrman is not being led by the evidence. Rather, he presupposes a system in which Jesus could never be divine before ever considering the evidence. The only way you can do history responsibly is on the basis of shared presuppositions. In other words, uh, historians don't make claims that other historians won't accept simply because of the presuppositions involved. Uh, for example, if somebody wants to claim that the reason the Allies won the Second World War, no historian would say that it was because um, God intervened and made sure. <laughs> right. that it, and just as nobody would say, well, it's because Martians came down <laughs> and uh, infiltrated the Nazis. And because, you, I mean, somebody might think that, but you can't make that as a historical argument because historians don't share the, the kinds of assumptions that the argument's based on. Right. And so you can't say that Jesus was raised from the dead as a historical statement because it presupposes all sorts of theological beliefs that aren't shared in the historical community. Right. So it's not a historical argument anymore, it's a theological argument. Right. You know, I mean, I'm a historian. I don't believe in miracles. Since Ehrman says that scholarship must begin with naturalistic assumptions, he then claims that all real historians agree with him. Anyone who thinks Jesus could be divine isn't doing history, but theology. From such a worldview, 
the historic Jesus could never be the Son of God. He could not have done miracles, and he could not have risen from the dead. Having dismissed the miraculous and edited out the parts that don't fit his theories, Ehrman then remakes Jesus into what he wants him to be. Jesus didn't think he was God. I mean, Jesus was, uh, he, was a, he was a Jewish teacher who thought he had the right interpretation of the law and thought that, I mean, he thought that God had given him the right interpretation of the law, but I mean, he was, he was, a, he was a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. Jesus wasn't planning on starting a new religion. He had no designs of starting a new religion. He was a Jew, uh, born a Jew. He was a Jewish teacher who taught the Jewish law to his Jewish followers. I mean, he was Jewish. For Bart Ehrman, any naturalistic explanation, no matter how far-fetched, is preferable to one that involves the miraculous. So he spins a history in which the disciples must have had dreams or visions of Jesus after his death, and then come up with the story of his resurrection to make sense of it all. What are we to make of Thomas being told to put his fingers in the nail holes and his hand in Jesus' side? Ehrman says it was either a delusion or a fabrication. How does he know? You know, I mean, I'm a historian. I don't believe in miracles. Ehrman rewrites all of Christian history based on such assumptions. He claims the manuscripts of the New Testament are so corrupt we can never know what they originally said. He claims that the early church wasn't really that persecuted, but lived in relative peace within the Roman Empire. And its dramatic growth from a handful of disciples is completely reasonable. He claims that the New Testament wasn't written by the actual disciples of Jesus, but by others pretending to be them. And he claims that rather than the teachings of the apostles defining the church, there were many competing Christianities. The winners rewrote history and adopted a Bible to suit themselves. Do Ehrman's claims about suppressed scriptures and rewritten history sound familiar? They're really not that different from those made a few years earlier by Dan Brown in The Da Vinci Code. And to strengthen this new Christian tradition, Constantine held a famous ecumenical gathering known as the Council of Nicaea. And at this council, the many sects of Christianity debated and uh, voted on, well, uh, everything from the acceptance and rejection of specific gospels to the date for Easter, to the ministry of the sacraments, and of course, the immortality Jesus. I don't follow. Masha, until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by many of his followers as a mighty prophet, as a great and powerful man, but a man, nevertheless, a mortal man. Not the son of God? Not even his nephew twice removed. Ian McKellen's character sounds authoritative, but to make his case, he appeals to Gnostic counterfeits written hundreds of years after the time of Jesus. Now, listen to this. It's from the Gospel according to Philip. Philip? Yes, it was rejected at the Council of Nicaea, along with any other Gospels that made Jesus appear human and not divine. And this is from the Gospel of Mary Magdalene herself. She wrote a Gospel? She may have. Jesus must be shown from what he was. Not miraculous, simply man. Ehrman describes the Da Vinci Code as fiction masquerading as history. P. 
people started asking me about the Da Vinci Code, uh, and they wanted to know, is it true that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene? Is it true that Constantine decided to, to get rid of these other Gospels? Is it true that Jesus wasn't thought of as divine until the fourth century when Constantine called the Council of Nicaea? Are these things true? Uh, well, I'm sorry to say that uh, despite the fact that they make for very good fiction, uh, they don't make for very good history. Are Ehrman's claims any more reliable? Not really. I've decided that the best place to begin our study is by summarizing for you the life of a remarkable man who lived nearly 2,000 years ago. The accounts of his life may sound familiar to you. Even before he was born, his mother knew that he would not be a normal child. In fact, she had an angelic visitor come to her prior to her conception, explaining that uh, the one who would be born of her would himself be divine. His birth itself was accompanied by miraculous signs and wonders. As a young child, he was religiously precocious, beyond what the adult religious leaders that he met could have imagined possible. As an adult, he left home to engage in an itinerant preaching ministry, going from village to town, teaching his good news that people did not need to be tied to the material things of this world, but should live for what is spiritual. He gathered a number of disciples around him who became convinced that he was no mere mortal, and he did miracles to confirm them in their faith, healing the sick, casting out demons, and even raising the dead. But he raised the ire of many of those in power, who brought him up on charges before the Roman authorities. Even after he left this world, though, his followers continued to believe in him, claiming that he had ascended to heaven and that they had seen him alive afterwards. At a later time, some of his followers wrote books about his life, and some of these writings still survive today. But I doubt if any of you has ever read any of them. And I doubt if many of you have even heard the name of the man I've been describing. Apollonius of Tiana. Apollonius of Tiana, the famous Neo-Pythagorean philosopher of the first century A.D. The vast majority of Ehrman's audience had never heard of Apollonius, much less read Philostratus's biography of him. Ehrman sounds authoritative, but rather than the story of Apollonius arising independently of the story of Jesus, it was written over two centuries after Jesus' birth by those who were trying to destroy the Christian faith. Philostratus admits in the story that he wrote under commission from the empress, Julia Domna. She supposedly provided him with secret memoirs from one of Apollonius' disciples. What's not so obvious to a modern reader is that she was the wife of the Roman emperor, Septimius Severus, who was killing Christians for refusing to worship him and the rest of the Roman pantheon of gods. Should it surprise us if there are some parallels to Jesus in the story, when Philostratus and his sponsors were actively trying to discredit Christianity and basing it on previously unknown memoirs? 
what Bart Ehrman has done is simply to dust off anti-Christian propaganda of the third century, ignore its source, and put it forward as something that legitimately calls into question the uniqueness of Jesus. He doesn't stop there. He also exaggerates the parallels to bolster his case. The angelic visitor wasn't really an angel from heaven. It was Proteus from the island of Pharos. He was a Roman god, but in the pagan sense of Zeus or Thor, a superman, or in this case, a superfishman. Ehrman's claim that Apollonius was divine is also misleading. His sponsor, the emperor, also claimed to be divine. Severus claimed to be the adopted son of the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who had been declared a god by the Roman Senate upon his death. Ehrman uses such pagan claims to insist that Jesus should be understood as fairly unremarkable. But the story of Jesus doesn't come from a pagan setting with lots of little gods. It comes from a Jewish understanding of Jesus as the unique son of the one and only God, whom the heavens of heavens can't contain. According to Philostratus, the Romans didn't kill Apollonius, nor did they try. Philostratus does record that Apollonius appeared in a dream to a young man after his death, but only to affirm the immortality of the soul. Ehrman spins all of this to try to make it sound more like Jesus. To those who have never bothered to read Philostratus, it can sound weighty. To those who've read him and the Bible, it's a farce. But sadly, a farce many people want to hear. They long for something that has the ring of truth, but that also allows them to dismiss the idea that they will ever face the Jesus of the Bible in judgment. Just as Ehrman ignores the origins of his story about Apollonius, he also ignores the source of his claims about the early church. A major shift in thinking came only in modern times with the discovery of other early Christian writings and a critical appraisal of the biases that were at work in Eusebius's account. The bombshell was dropped in 1934 by a prominent German scholar named Walter Bauer in a groundbreaking book that was entitled Orthodoxy and Heresy in Earliest Christianity. This was arguably the most important book written on early Christianity in modern times, Bauer's book on Orthodoxy and Heresy. Bauer maintained that Eusebius had not given an objective account of the relationship of early Christian groups, but that Eusebius had rewritten the history of Christian internal conflicts so as to validate the victory of the Orthodox party that he himself represented. Rather than being the original view that had always been shared by the majority of Christians, according to Bauer, what later came to be known as orthodoxy was originally just one of the numerous forms of Christianity in the early centuries. It was the one form of Christianity that eventually ended up acquiring the majority of converts over time. Once it had done that, and once it had wiped out the opposition, then it rewrote the history of the conflict to make it, a, make it appear that it had always been the majority view. 
Ehrman insists that those who hold an orthodox view of Christianity are guilty of biases. But just as he neglects to tell his audiences that the story of Apollonius was written while Philostratus was on the payroll of the Roman emperor, he neglects to tell them that Walter Bauer was on the payroll of Hitler's Third Reich. Many are aware that Christians such as Dietrich Bonhoeffer actively opposed the Nazis. But what is not so well known is that many others collaborated with them. Bauer was a professor at the state-owned University of Göttingen in 1934, where only the previous year all the Jewish faculty had been purged. The fact that he publicly declared his loyalty to the National Socialist government doesn't invalidate Bauer's work, but it does point us to a context of which few in Ehrman's audience are aware. Even before the rise of Hitler, liberal scholars in Germany, such as Adolf von Harnack, had been trying to remake Christianity into a sort of rationalistic pietism. Harnack rejected not only Christ's deity and miracles, but also that Christianity originally had anything to do with the reconciliation of sinful men to a holy God. He argued that such thinking was more a product of Judaism and Greek philosophy than the teachings of Jesus. He believed that Jesus' actual message was about a subjective enlightenment, an understanding of the fatherhood of God and the infinite value of the human soul. Harnack championed the second-century heretic Marcion, who had espoused what is known as a docetic view of Jesus. The term comes from the Greek word dokain, to appear. Since Docetists argued that Jesus was divine, but only appeared to be human, and only appeared to die. No sacrificial death was needed, because he said the wrathful God of the Old Testament wasn't the same God revealed by Jesus. Like Marcion, Harnack called for the church to reject the Old Testament and to divorce Jesus from Judaism. He wasn't alone in this desire. The Semitic scholar Paul Haupt taught at Göttingen before becoming the director of the Oriental Seminary at Johns Hopkins. He argued, It is by no means certain that Jesus of Nazareth and his first disciples were Jews by race. They may have been Aryans. Anti-Semitism and a liberal Christianity that rejected sin and atonement demanded a Jesus who was not Jewish. During the war, German biblical scholars founded the Institute for the Study and Elimination of Jewish Influence on German Church Life. They produced a Bible without an Old Testament and with a heavily edited New Testament. Hebrew words such as Jehovah, Hosanna, Jerusalem, and even Hallelujah were all removed, along with much of the writings of the Apostle Paul. It's important to recognize Walter Bauer's work in the context of this larger quest for an Aryan Jesus. Bauer had claimed in 1927 that Galilee was predominantly Gentile and that Jesus did not see himself as the Jewish Messiah. In the 1934 book, Ehrman Praises, he argued that there was no real orthodoxy or heresy in the early church. Instead of there being a clear apostolic rule of faith from which heresies diverged, he claimed there were numerous divergent experiences of Jesus, some of which coalesced into what became orthodoxy and sought to destroy the others. When you assume that Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead, then you also have to assume that there couldn't be miracle-working apostles to define the faith. It's natural then to conclude that doctrine was simply a matter of politics and of power. 
Bauer argued that docetism was an expression of Christianity at least as early and authentic as anything that could be described as orthodox. This conveniently solved the problem of a Jewish Jesus, because he couldn't be Jewish if he wasn't really human. What kinds of evidence did Bauer present for what Ehrman describes as his bombshell? He generally tried to read between the lines of Orthodox history, and he largely argued from silence. We know from Paul's epistles that there were churches in the Asian cities of Colossae and Hierapolis. In the book of Revelation, John addresses churches in the area, but not these specific churches. Similarly, Ignatius, the second-century bishop of Antioch, wrote to other churches in the area, but not to these. Bauer contended that it must be because a competing form of Christianity would have made their letters unwelcome. He described John and Ignatius as passing them by in icy silence. Bauer glosses over the fact that Laodicea, which was addressed by John, was less than ten miles from Colossae and six miles from Hierapolis. It was a much larger city and the natural hub for communications to the area. He also thinks that since John did not mention the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, it must have been that Paul had soon been forgotten by the church that he founded. Though some consider this scholarship, it's nothing but rank speculation. Despite claiming to represent earliest Christianity, Bauer dismisses most of the things written in the first century in favor of things written in later centuries. It's also telling that Bauer's hypothesis largely rests on theories about Edessa. It was the capital of Osroine, but was by far the smallest of the four cities on which he focused. It also just so happens to be the one for which we have the least evidence. Bauer maintained that Docetism was the earliest form of Christianity in Edessa. He argued that a lack of contrary evidence showed that orthodoxy was largely non-existent there until the 4th century. This is explicitly contradicted by the church historian Eusebius. He mentions an Orthodox church council taking place there in the 2nd century. But Bauer argues this is only according to a 10th century Greek manuscript. He said the earliest witness for the text of Eusebius, an 8th century manuscript of Rufinus's translation, did not make any reference to Osroine. Bauer didn't tell his readers that there was actually a much earlier witness. Not an 8th century, but a 5th century Syriac manuscript with the same reading as the Greek and that contradicted his hypothesis. To those who bother to look behind Ehrman's claims, Walter Bauer has been shown not just to be biased, but unreliable and dishonest. Ehrman and other so-called scholars continue to appeal to him, not because they're trying to create an Aryan Jesus, but because they also want a world in which there is no orthodoxy or heresy. We can only imagine what might have happened if things had turned out differently. If different books, like the Gospel of Thomas, or the Epistle of Barnabas, or the Apocalypse of Peter, had made it into the Bible. If different groups, like the Valentinian Gnostics, or the Marcionites, or the Ebionites, had won more converts than their proto-Orthodox contemporaries, we can only imagine what would have happened. But whether we like it or not, for the most part, these other views became marginalized, castigated as heresies, and then destroyed, along with their sacred books.
it's really not that hard to imagine what the victory of these groups would have looked like. Marcion edited the New Testament to make it contradict the Old, while Valentinus claimed secret knowledge from outside the Bible. But their end results were much the same. Both viewed the God of the Old Testament as evil. Christianity wasn't about being reconciled to that God, but replacing him with one that better suited their taste. For the Ebionites, the God of the Old Testament wasn't evil, but he also wasn't that offended by sin. They recognized Jesus as human, but not divine. He didn't rise from the dead, but simply encouraged people to keep the Old Testament ceremonial law. For all their differences, the Marcionites, Valentinians, and Ebionites were all united in their view that God really wasn't that holy and sin really wasn't that bad. It's not that hard to imagine their victory because such ideas came to define much of Protestantism in the early 20th century. Scholars such as Harnack championed these alternative Christianities from antiquity largely because they had come to share their contempt of orthodoxy. Richard Niebuhr summed up liberal theology in a way that also describes these early heresies. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. For the authors of the New Testament, the cross was at the very heart of their gospel. This was because they saw themselves in need of far, far more than enlightenment and religious ceremonies. As tempted as they might be to think otherwise, they knew they couldn't judge God but would be judged by Him. He describes us as having hearts that are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Though we may try to convince ourselves otherwise, the one time that we had God within our grasp, we nailed Him to a cross. The offense of the Old Testament is it makes clear that a holy God judges sin and will not allow sinners with wicked hearts, filthy past, and poisonous lives into His presence. The biblical gospel is about Jesus nailing our rebellious hearts to the cross and giving us new hearts that love Him. It's about Him taking our sins upon Himself and paying their penalty on the cross so that we might have His perfect righteous life counted to us. It's about Him nailing our poisonous lives to the cross and putting His Holy Spirit in us. Everything we have from first century Christianity agrees on this. But Barterman tries to undermine that message by denying that the Gospels were actually written by the Apostles. These books don't claim to be written by people named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were, they were attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John only in the second century, decades after they were written. What evidence does Ehrman have for this claim? None. He can cite the opinions of other so-called scholars, but every manuscript we have identifies the author. And no one in the early church ever attributed the canonical Gospels to anyone else. But since the name only appears as a title and not in the body of the Gospel, Ehrman confidently insists that the church must have accepted the Gospels as anonymous. Only later did they slap the names of apostles on them to give them legitimacy. Just as with Bauer, gratuitous assertions are supposed to pass as scholarship. About the year 180, we have Irenaeus, the Bishop of Lyon, identifying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the authors of their Gospels and quoting from the opening of each. He says that there are only four Gospels and we know who wrote them. 
He rejected other Gospels because he said that they were too late. They appeared long after the deaths of their reputed authors and were obviously not written by them. How did he know all this? Because he was personally taught by Polycarp, who was personally taught by the Apostle John. Ehrman argues that if anyone had any questions about any book of the New Testament, we can't know anything with certainty. But for Irenaeus, the canon of the New Testament was not a mass of confusion waiting to be sorted out hundreds of years later. It was simply a recognition of the books that had been written by the apostles and handed down within the churches to which they had been given. He alludes to or directly quotes from 24 of the 27 books of the New Testament in his arguments against the heretics. The only books to which he does not refer are Philemon, 3 John, and Jude, books that are only a single chapter long. Irenaeus also did something that many of Ehrman's readers never bothered to do. He read these other supposed Gospels. Besides having Jesus killing children and fooling the Jews into crucifying someone else in his place, they said things like this. Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't require a scholar to recognize that most of these supposed Gospels aren't rooted in Judaism but Gnosticism. They're attempting to remake Jesus into a pagan mystic. But even if we restrict ourselves to what's actually in the New Testament, Ehrman insists we shouldn't see these books as the Word of God, because even the biblical authors didn't. When Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, he wrote a, uh, a letter that was sent through the ancient equivalent of the ancient male. Paul did not know he was writing the Bible, and the people who got the book didn't know they were receiving the Bible. It was a letter sent from one Christian authority to other Christians. Just as Ehrman pretends to read the mind of Jesus, he also pretends to read the minds of Paul in the early church. The risen Jesus commissioning Paul as his official messenger is ignored because Ehrman doesn't believe Jesus really rose from the dead. The fact that miracles were supposed to attest to Paul's authority is also ignored, because Ehrman doesn't believe in miracles. The fact that Paul commands the church in Jesus' name means nothing. Ehrman insists Paul was just writing a letter. We're not supposed to look too closely at Ehrman's arguments, but simply accept his conclusions. Because remember, he's a scholar. I don't think Peter wrote 1 Peter or 2 Peter, and the reason I don't think he wrote 1 Peter or 2 Peter is because I don't think Peter could write. <laughs> what do we know about Peter? Well, in the New Testament, he's a fisherman in, in rural Galilee. Were fishermen in rural Galilee educated? The answer is almost certainly no. There have been studies of literacy in the ancient world that indicate that at the best of times in the ancient world, maybe 10% of the population could read. Far fewer than that 10% could write, and by write I mean actually copy out letters. Fewer than that could compose, and fewer than that could compose something that was very elegant. First Peter is written in highly elegant Greek. 
The apostle Peter was a, an illiterate fisherman. By the way, he's called illiterate in the New Testament. Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says that Peter was illiterate, unlettered. Agrammatos is the Greek, unlettered, unable, to, unable to read the letters. Agrammatoi doesn't mean that Peter and John couldn't recognize letters. The context is clearly that they lacked formal education, yet they spoke with boldness before the Sanhedrin. The same root is used in John 7.15 where people are marveling at Jesus' teaching. They weren't shocked that he could read letters on a page, but as with Peter that he was an eloquent speaker despite a lack of formal training. The early Christian writer Papias said he was told by the Apostle John that Mark served as Peter's interpreter. The use of a different interpreter could explain the difference in the Greek of Peter's two epistles, but none of that matters to Ehrman. Peter had to be an ignorant, illiterate fisherman. His epistles are simply forgeries embraced by a gullible church that didn't know any better. How do we know? Because Bart Ehrman and those he considers real scholars say so. But even if we answer Ehrman's claims about the canon and its authorship, he insists we cannot believe the New Testament because it is filled with contradictions. Mark is quite explicit. Our first gospel is explicit. Jesus has a Passover meal with his disciples. Afterwards, he goes out and he's arrested. Uh, when Judas betrays him, he spends the night in jail and he's put on the cross the next morning at 9 o'clock a.m., the morning after the Passover meal was eaten. John, our latest gospel, is also quite explicit. There's no word about Jesus and the disciples having a Passover meal. Jesus goes out and he's arrested. He spends the night in jail. He's put on trial and Pontius Pilate condemns him to death afternoon, not at nine o'clock, afternoon on the day before the Passover meal was to be eaten. John 19 verse 14 says it explicitly. Well, did he eat the Passover meal or not? In Mark, yes. In John, no. They can't both be right. He didn't get crucified at two different times. He got crucified once. Well, which day was it? They both can't be right. The Jews in John 18.28 didn't enter into the praetorium because they didn't want to be defiled before eating the Passover. Since the Synoptic Gospels placed Jesus' trial after the eating of the Passover meal, Ehrman insists John is contradicting them on the day of Jesus' crucifixion. The problem for Ehrman is that the Passover involved more than just a single meal. As spelled out in Exodus 12, the Passover festival continued for a week. Defilement was an issue for the whole seven days. Ehrman says that John 19.14 explicitly states that the crucifixion took place before the Thursday Passover meal. But the preparation was simply the name used for Friday. This is confirmed by the Synoptic Gospels, with Mark explicitly saying that the preparation was the day before the Sabbath. Remember, Ehrman said the Gospel accounts couldn't be reconciled. His claims don't hold up on the day of the crucifixion, but what about the supposed differences in time? The Synoptic Gospels are all relating a Jewish understanding of the day beginning at sunup so that the sixth hour would be noon. According to tradition, John is writing from Ephesus, probably after the destruction of Jerusalem. If he is using a Roman understanding of the day starting at midnight, 
that would make the sixth hour 6 a.m., not noon. Though this removes any contradiction, Ehrman insists that harmonizing the Bible is to show disrespect for individual authors. But behind his purported respect is an attempt to disprove them all. This is especially evident in his claims about textual criticism. When pressed, Ehrman will admit that the manuscript evidence for the New Testament could literally be stacked over a mile high. No other manuscript from antiquity comes anywhere close to the volume and consistency of the biblical manuscripts. But of course, this isn't good enough. Unless we have something from the pen of the original author, or unless God struck a scribe dead when he made a mistake, he says it's all a mass of confusion. We don't have the first copy. We don't have copies of the copy. We don't have copies of the 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 copies. There are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. There are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. There are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. The vastness and complexity of the textual evidence allow Ehrman to confuse people. But Bruce Metzger was the Princeton professor under whom Ehrman earned his Ph.D. He dealt with the very same evidence, but he described things very differently. We can say that we have in the Greek New Testament and in faithful translations of the New Testament, we can say with assurance, this is God's word. Why the difference in conclusions? Because Metzger focused less on trying to justify doubt and more on the actual evidence. Let me say that despite these variant readings, very few of them pertain to any doctrine. Many of these variant readings have to do with spelling in the Greek language. Many of them have to do with the order of words in the Greek language. And the order of words in Greek language, unlike English, does not really uh, reflect a difference of meaning. There are, however, a few places that bear on doctrine. But none of these doctrines is hinged only on one passage that's in doubt. Ehrman claims that even modern computers can't calculate all the textual variants. Metzger, on the other hand, took the time to actually go through them and wrote a book in which he engaged every textual variant that was viable and significant. As you might expect, it never made the New York Times bestseller list. We've seen that Ehrman is unreliable in his specialties of history and textual criticism, but things get far worse when he ventures into theology. In his book, God's Problem, he expresses confusion over the suffering of innocent people, apparently oblivious to the fact that the Bible presents Jesus as the only innocent person since the fall. He also makes statements like this paradoxical statements about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as three separate beings and yet comprising only one God, the doctrine of the Trinity. There's only one God, but there are three beings, and they're not all the same being. They're three separate beings, but there aren't three gods. There's one God. The doctrine of the Trinity is not about three beings in one being. 
but three distinct persons sharing the one being of God. It would be tempting to think that Ehrman simply misspoke, but the same statement appears in his printed works as well. Then in 2015, there was also his debate with Justin Bass. He is definitely not Yahweh or any author of the New Testament. Yahweh and Jesus are different beings in the New Testament. What, what's the latter half of the Philippian poem say? He's honored. He's, he's put at a position with Yahweh. That doesn't make him Yahweh. He is definitely not Yahweh. Okay, so Romans 10, when he says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, what's Paul quoting from Romans 10? What's Paul quoting Paul thought Jesus was the Lord, yes. And the Lord is... Look, if you think that Jesus was Yahweh, you've committed the heresy called Sabellianism. No, no, no. Which was a third century heresy that said that Jesus and Yahweh were the same being. It was condemned as a heresy in early Christianity, and it continues to be condemned by heresy by every Orthodox Christian on the planet. Yahweh, or Jehovah as it's traditionally transliterated into English, isn't just the Father, but all three persons of the Trinity. Bart Ehrman says Yahweh and Jesus are different beings in the New Testament. Ehrman isn't only being contradicted by Dr. Bass, but also once again by the man under whom he earned his Ph.D. Bruce Metzger said, Writers in the New Testament apply to Jesus Christ passages from the Old Testament, which refer to Jehovah. What does it show when the chief critic of Christianity in the English language doesn't understand its most fundamental doctrine, the Trinity. It shows that many people don't care about real scholarship, but are hungry for a deconversion story that allows them to dismiss Christianity without really having to deal with the evidence. So, okay, so I teach students who are 19 and 20-year-olds who have been raised in very uh, conservative evangelical circles where the Bible is never... Uh, talked about except as being the uh, infallible revelation from God. Uh, this is a view that I find to be unhelpful. Uh, they, uh, these, uh, they are also taught that since the Bible condemns homosexuality, that uh, gay relationships are wrong. They're taught that since the Bible... Slavery is okay, though, isn't it? Slavery is okay, sure, that's, that's, that's in approved. the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, women are not allowed uh, to uh, exercise a role of authority in the church because that's what the Bible says, and you just go down the list. Uh, I think that the, the best way to get people to be more reflective about the religion is to, is to talk, talk to them where it's at the weakest point. And I think the weakest point for that kind of fundamentalism has to do with the Bible itself. And, and what, you're, what you're objecting to, I mean, I know you're not really objecting, but the historical critical method can be used in order to disabuse people of their assumption, yeah. their fundamentalist assumptions. And so I use it as a strategy, as a way of trying to get to people so that they have to realize they can't maintain this way of looking at the world anymore. Michael Shermer is the founder of the Skeptic Society and editor-in-chief of Skeptic Magazine. Do you remember what he said to Ehrman? Most atheists know your work, um, and they love the story about how you went to uh, Wheaton Bible College and, and were going to be a preacher, and then you went to Princeton Theological and found out how the sausages are made. <laughs> and, and, and frankly, I, I, I've often said this. I don't know how anybody could take one of your teaching company courses or read one of your books and, and still be a believer afterwards. We continue to believe the Bible because we don't confuse conspiracy theories with real scholarship. 
We've examined Ehrman's claims, followed the evidence, and we've seen how the anti-Christian propaganda is made. We've heard the arguments for atheism and rejected its materialistic worldview as logically absurd. We recognize that the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in Jesus and in no other. He came at the appointed time and place and was the sacrifice that could truly reconcile us to a holy God. The apostles sealed their testimony to Jesus' resurrection with their lives, but they first established churches that continued long after their deaths. Those churches knew what came from the apostles and what were later forgeries. Like the apostles, they sealed their testimony with their lives. In spite of all the doubt Ehrman tries to create, we see that God has providentially preserved his word and that it reveals a glorious gospel of a glorious Savior. Our conclusion is that the Bible stands up to scrutiny, but Bart Ehrman simply doesn't. Thank you.